0: Chapter 11. The apostles and brethren in Judea soon heard of the Gentiles' conversion. When Peter returned to Jerusalem, brethren who were of the circumcision, i.e., the Jewish Christians, took issue with his eating with uncircumcised men. Peter carefully explained the sequence of events, including the vision in Joppa, and the manner in which the Spirit fell upon the Gentiles as he began to speak to them. The baptism of the Spirit of the Gentiles was understood to indicate that Gentiles were now allowed to hear the words of salvation and that they could repent in order to have life. Luke then records how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Antioch. Those scattered after the persecution of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 included men from Cyprus and Cyrene who began preaching Jesus to the Hellenists or the Grecian Jews. When a great number believed and turned to the Lord, the news was soon heard by those in the church at Jerusalem. Barnabas was sent to Antioch and rejoiced in what he saw. He first spent some time encouraging them by himself, but later went to Tarsus to find Saul. For a full year they worked together with the church in Antioch and taught many people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and in hearing from the prophet Agabus that there was going to be a famine, they displayed their Christ-like character by sending relief according to their ability to the brethren in Judea. Acts 11 and verse 1. And the apostles and the brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word. The news of these Gentiles being converted had arrived in Judea before Peter did, and it had sufficient time to be digested and turned quite sour to some Jewish minds. Stephen and the Hellenes had caused plenty of trouble, but so far the apostles had remained free from any taint of Gentile leanings. If the apostles, however, were now going to start fellowshipping with Gentiles, then more trouble could be expected. In any case, the Hebrews in the Christian community, always suspicious of the Hellenists in their midst, took instant alarm. There was no way they could ever accept a Gentile to fellowship apart from circumcision. At least, that was their initial thinking. Acts 11, verses 3-9 to 9. Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and did eat with them, But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descend, as it had been a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners. And it came even to me, upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay, and eat. But I say, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath in any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Peter's Jewish critics were silenced. With Peter's first statement, they recognized that Peter was a man of prayer. He had not acted in the spirit of self-will, he had been praying. That was where this began, with a man of God on his knees, talking to his Lord. Then the mention of the vision would direct their thoughts at once to the dietary laws of Leviticus chapter 11. They knew those laws by heart as Peter did. The sheet descending from heaven and ascending to heaven, filled with the creatures ceremonially unclean, would grip them. The fact that the thing was done three times did not escape them. A threefold testimony was crucial in Israel to establishing the truth of a matter. That God had pronounced the creatures clean and thus put an end to Peter's religious scruples was remarkable and wholly unexpected. That such diverse creatures should be received finally and empathetically into heaven was astonishing. And then we see in verse 10, And this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. Ecclesiastes 4.12 mentions that if one prevail against him, who shall withstand him? And a threefold cord is not easily broken. That is the word of God. So Peter tried to impress the repetitive nature of the vision onto his listeners three times. Even the, the dullest of scholars in the school of God could hardly miss the point of a lesson that was gone over three times by the teacher. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That is the Holy Spirit's way of teaching the dull of heart. Three times, Peter said, God had to drill this thing into me three times. I couldn't see it. Then I wouldn't see it. Then I saw it clearly. In verse 11, And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. You will know again, brethren, Peter might have mentioned there were three people. 3 again is connected with this vision, and as soon as they mentioned Caesarea, I could see the drift of the vision. I was being directed towards the Gentile world, which, like yourself, I had always considered unclean. Verse 12, And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. How thankful Peter must have been in his foresight of taking these witnesses with him. From now on, it would not be his word alone, but he had six witnesses, twice the number demanded by the Mosaic Law, to testify to the truth of a matter. The urging of the Holy Spirit had endorsed the message of the vision. If the exclusive members of the Jerusalem Church were going to argue with what followed, let them beware the Holy Spirit was in this business, and Peter had not made this move lightly. The Holy Spirit had directed him implicitly and explicitly to go to the Gentiles. It is a great thing when contemplating some course of action for us to be sure we have the mind of the Spirit. That is true of all life's decisions, but particularly when contemplating some major change of direction or some wholly new course of action. The Holy Spirit does not lack for means to impress his will upon us, but sometimes we're just in a bit of a hurry to listen, or we're in too impatient to listen. Now verses 13 and 14 of chapter 11. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Now was the time for them to speak or forever hold their peace. Peter had no intention of withstanding God. What about them? The men of the circumcision in Jerusalem church had been effectively checkmated by the Holy Spirit. They must have looked at each other, looked hard at Peter, looked at Peter's witnesses, solid citizens of the kingdom, standing by, all nodding their heads in agreement with what Peter was telling them. They must have looked at the Hellenists beaming at Peter's story. It must have been a large and bitter pill to swallow. There was 2,000 years of growing Jewish prejudice against the Gentiles that had to be gulped down at that moment. But it was evident, even to the narrowest, that there was nothing they could possibly say against Peter. His story was evidently an account of God's clear leading and God's working. And Peter's earnestness was unmistakable, along with the witnesses agreeing with everything Peter said. The conclusion he reached was incontrovertible. Cornelius and the Gentiles had been accepted by God. As equal heirs of the grace of God, first-class citizens in the kingdom, fellow members of the body of Christ. Now let look at verse 18. When they had heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Isn't that an amazing verse? Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That includes me. Matthew Henry said this, God had spoken by his deeds as well as his words. It is a great comfort to us that God has exalted his son Jesus, not only to give repentance to Israel and the remission of sins, but to the Gentiles also. To the Gentiles also. What an amazing verse. Now let's look at verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon this persecution that arose about, Stephen traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none, but unto the Jews only. The door having been opened to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit moves us at once into predominantly Gentile lands. Phenis was an old Philistine country, which ran for about 40 miles along the seacoast, varying between 10 and 20 miles wide. It was the great thoroughfare between Phoenicia and Syria and north Egypt, Arabia to the south. It was the great thoroughfare between Phoenicia and Syria, in the north and Egypt and Arabia in the south. Philip the Evangelist had been that way. These were the places where the Christians went to escape the growing hostility in Jerusalem. They were scattered abroad, says the Holy Spirit. Satan had overreached himself. By scattering the burning coals of the Christian witness, he made it possible for the fresh fires of testimony to spring up elsewhere. Now look at verse 20. Some of them, which were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spoke unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Cypriot-Cyrenian Jews took the first daring step. There in that pagan, utterly immoral city of Antioch, these inspired Jewish Christians crossed the Great Divide. Peter had unlocked the door in Caesarea, and they pushed it wide open. So these our sighted Cypriot and Cyrenian Jewish Christians took the first major step in Gentile world evangelization. They began to preach the Lord Jesus to the hungry way Gentiles in one of the most wicked cities of the world. In verse 21, in the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. You know what happened when they started preaching Jesus, started giving hope to these wicked pagan Gentiles? There was instant revival. The message was like water to a thirsty man, like bread to a starving man. The Gentiles, worn out and wearied with their pagan superstitions, heartsick over deadness of their gods, and the debaucheries of their priests, instantly recognized truth. Truth is easy to recognize, and these Gentiles instantly recognized truth. Our Lord is truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. The name of the Lord Jesus wrought an instant response in their souls. The hand of the Lord was with his people in proclaiming the saving, sovereign name to the Gentiles. Soon Jews would be a permanent minority to the church. As ever increasing numbers of Gentiles turned greatly to Christ. Look at verse 22. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. The news of what was happening in Antioch caused a considerable stir in Jerusalem. Though Peter had officially opened the door of the church to the Gentiles, it never really seemed to have occurred to anyone, apparently not even Peter, to take the next logical step and begin to evangelize the Gentile population of Jerusalem and Judea. There was the Roman garrison, the Roman diplomatic corps, there there was the staff, there was the business people, visitors such as the Greeks, who in the days of Christ's ministry came to the disciple Philip with the request, Sir, we would see Jesus, John chapter 12. So when the news of what was happening at Antioch reached Jerusalem, instead of seeing it as a logical extension of Peter's ministry in Caesarea, and as a challenge to do the same to the homeland, the Jerusalem church decided, we need to investigate this. What an opportunity that was apparently missed in Jerusalem to be the first church to begin gentile world evangelization. But the idea was too new. It challenged too many ingrained traditions. Traditions are something that hold back. The church, traditions are something that the church would use to hold back men that could do things, mighty things for the Lord, but not allowed to because of traditions. We've never done it that way before was the attitude. It's the attitude that's in a lot of churches today. We're not all sure we agree with what's going on. So Barnabas was selected to go and see what was happening in Antioch. We have met Barnabas before in Acts chapter 4, and we shall hear more of him again. He was a generous, godly, warm-hearted man, just the right man for this job. A better man could not have been chosen, and as a Cypriot, his sympathies would naturally be broader than those of the native-born Jewish believers. Now let's look at verse 24. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. What more could be said about a man? He was a good man. That says something about his character. He was like Jesus, one about doing good. We see that in Acts 10.38. He was the kind of a man Paul says that people would die for. Romans 5.7 He was full of the Holy Ghost. That says something about his Christianity. A person filled with the Spirit will be one whose life overflows with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. A person Christ-like in character, conduct, and conversion. He was full of faith. That says something about his commitment. Barnabas was a great believer. He took God at his word and trusted the Lord Jesus implicitly. It's like at verse 25. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus. For to seek Saul. The thing was too big for him. Barnabas realizes soon that this is too much for me. I need some help. What was happening at Antioch was much larger than anything Barnabas had anticipated, and it was only the beginning. He needed some help, and who did he think was best to help him with this? Saul. Verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. It would have immediately been apparent that Saul was the man. Some years had passed since Barnabas had said goodbye to him, but he had evidently grown in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had become a giant of the faith. The magnificent teaching that forms the backbone of his epistles was already formulated in his mind. He would expound these new converts at Antioch in this growing church. He would expound to them the mystery of Christ's cross, as would be taught in Romans. He would expound to the mystery of Christ's church, as it would be taught in Ephesians. The mystery of Christ's coming, as it would be taught in the Thessalonians. And disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. Christian was first a nickname, perhaps could have been a derogatory nickname. Some have suggested that the name was derived from the Greek word charstos, or useful, the name of a slave, a common enough name at the the time. More likely the name derived from Christos, the Greek form of the title Messiah, the one about whom disciples were always talking about. The Jews could not have given the name to the disciples of Jesus, for Christos was a sacred word among them, and they repudiated the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. However, the name Christian is singularly lovely and appropriate name for the believers of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit adopts it and uses it in 1 Peter 4.16. The word for called is generally used of a divine communication. For instance, Simeon haunted the temple because it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So although the name may have been given in mockery, it was a wonderful name. And its real origin was divine. The name stuck and became a badge of honor. It is a name by which the Lord's people are known by to this day. The name identifies us with Christ and him with us. What manner of people ought to be in all godliness of character, conduct, conversion, conversation, by whose name we bear, by whose name we advertise to the world that we are his. verses 27 to 28. And these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. The New Testament gift of prophecy was unique to the early church. Like the gift of tongues, it was expressed by direct inspiration of the Spirit of God. It was a transitional gift of great value. For the most part, like their Old Testament counterparts, these New Testament prophets were forth-tellers, rather than foretellers. Their function was to communicate to local congregation truth revealed by the Spirit and relevant to present needs. However, as we learn from this incident recorded here, the ministry of the prophet was not confined to specially illuminated preaching. Sometimes they did foretell the future, and one of those prophets ministering in Antioch was Agabus. He announced the coming of a widespread famine. He was foretelling the famine. Luke appends the note that this prophecy was fulfilled in the days of the Emperor Claudius, the fourth Roman emperor, who reigned from AD 41 to 54, whose reign was indeed marked by severe famines, several of them, in various parts of the empire. This advance warning would have enabled the believers to take prudent measures for the future. And then we have verses 29 to 30. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The famine hit Judea severely, and Antioch Christians were deeply concerned, and each one made a contribution to the relief fund according to his ability. And they sent these relief funds by the hands of Saul or Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem church. These were Christians on the mission fields of the early church and they were eager to help the church in Jerusalem, the, basically the sending church. They were eager to help them. It would be the equivalent of churches on the mission field today hearing of a great need in America and them gathering up everything they could possibly send to us and sending it back to us to help us. That's what these Christian Antioch believers were doing. They were helping the main church. They were sending a relief offering to the main church. They were sending help back to where their spiritual help came from. So as the funds accumulated, Solomon Barnabas were chosen to take the money to Jerusalem. This is the first time we meet the elders in the Christian church. The Jerusalem elders were a group distinct from the apostles. James the Lord's brother might have been one of them. This visit to Jerusalem seems to be the one mentioned by Paul in Galatians chapter 2, at which time he took advantage of being in a city to make sure the apostles, particularly Peter and John, along with James the Lord's brother, recognized him and his unique apostleship. Not, of course, that he needed their endorsement, but it was a good policy to have facts out in the open and well understood.